Acts chapter 2, I'm going to read verse 42 through to the end of the chapter. Actually, let me read verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Pray with me just a moment. Lord, I thank you for this snapshot that we have been given of the early church. Lord, this is what we as a church want to be like. Lord, as we search our hearts, we know that this doesn't characterize all of us personally. And so, Lord, I pray that without any undue burdens being laid on our backs, that by grace that you would help us to press into and resolve to be the church that we ought to be. Give us grace, Lord. We need your grace. I need your grace to hear your word this morning. I need your grace to preach your word. So be present with us, we pray. Be glorified, Jesus, in your church. Amen. Thank you for being seated. Well, as I mentioned to you <clears throat> this past week, we were very refreshed by being in the pastor's conference. I think for every pastor there, it was really just good to, good to sit back and to receive uh, from the Lord, but also to have our faith stirred, to have our faith stirred in, in hearing about the amazing things that the Lord is doing around the world through our family of churches, Sovereign Grace Churches. Uh, I got to hear about uh, some training that's taking place in West Africa amongst men there. There's a pastor's college that's been formed, and men are being sent out to plant and lead new churches in West Africa. Uh, in Ethiopia, which is primarily a Muslim nation, uh, we heard about a, a fast-growing sister church there that, of course, we knew about, they're friends of ours, but this church is just blowing up, and the majority of this church, uh, church is made up of new converts. I think over 60% of the church are new converts from Islam. In Bolivia, in South America, uh, there are people in Santa Cruz who are, are hungry for the truth of God's word, and they've joined with our friend there, David, uh, in the church there in Bolivia, which, by the way, you support financially, and you are giving to Harvest 24. We've been able to support that church each month uh, with $100. $100 goes a long way in Bolivianos, and so we've been blessed to care for them. But as I come back and as I reflect on the week, I do have one critique about the pastor's conferences, and it's not a criticism, 
not a criticism, it's just a critique, and maybe I'm the only one who thinks this, but I'm going to go ahead and share it with you. Uh, for all the exciting updates that we heard uh, going on around the world, uh, most of the men and women in that conference, most of them, cannot report explosive growth in their churches. Most of them can't say, the Lord just gave us a new, new $5 million building last week, and now we just have this amazing new building. Although I did hear about that, that happened. Most of the men and women there are simply ordinary men and women whose names, if I mentioned them to you, you'd forget them in just a few minutes. I would have liked to have heard stories. I would have liked to have heard stories about the small group leader who, though he'll never be a pastor, loves the people under his care. He's not out in the African bush, no. He's there, though, in the hospital room when a member's child is sick. He regularly sends encouraging text messages to his small group, even though he works a busy job. Or I would have loved to have heard about the, the pastor and his wife, whose names, again, you wouldn't remember, but who have been serving for 35 years in, in small-town USA, meeting in rented building after rented building. And every week, that man gets up, and he preaches, and he teaches during the week. They have conversations around their dinner table with hurting people, conversations no one will ever know about. He carries dozens of burdens, all alone, but he remains faithful. I would have liked to have heard about the mother who for 24-7 is covered in, in spit-up and pieces of food and discipline. Yet every day she wakes up with little sleep and she loves her home well because she knows that God has given her a stewardship. That, that's my critique. Because, friends, you know, when I read this passage in the book of Acts, yes, we see God doing amazing things. Yes, we see explosive growth. Yes, we see the Lord adding. This is a time of, of great revival when the gospel is spreading in Jerusalem. But do you know what fills me with resolve to remain faithful in my calling as a Christian? It's passages like we just read, that paint a picture of the early church, a church that is inhabited by Jesus himself and is alive because of that and most happy because of that, even though, guess what? They are most ordinary people. These men and women are stunned by what Jesus has done for them to rescue them from a life of self-rule, which leads to death. So what did they do? They devoted themselves to very normal activities, fueled by Jesus' love. They knew what author Zach Eswin discovered. Almost anything in life that truly matters will require you to do small mostly overlooked things over a long period of time with Jesus. And the fruit of that kind of life is that God is pleased to save more and more people through your faithfulness. 
As I said, this is a passage that gets a lot of, of airtime. This is a time of great revival. It's a great study of revival. If you're ever interested in that particular subject, it's an unusual time in church history. But for all the incredible things we see, we see that it shows us what God is pleased to do when the extraordinary gospel of Jesus takes root in a local community of ordinary believers who are inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Luke, the author, highlights three commitments this new church were devoted to, gave themselves to, and I'll give these to you, and then we'll go through each of these. They gave themselves to learning, they gave themselves to loving, and they gave themselves to liturgy. And I'm going to I borrowed those headings, by the way, from Tim Keller because they work so well and I love them. But these are the marks of the ordinary faithful church. If a title would serve you, that's your title, the ordinary faithful church. And friends, I, I'm glad that I get to preach this because I just wanted to come up here, especially after like a week that we just had, and just encourage you because I see these things taking place in this church. I see these things taking place. These are characteristic of Grace City Church. And so as we listen and as we're encouraged, here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask yourself personally. You can always be challenged by any passage. Are these things true of me? Do these three traits, these three devoted commitments, are these true of me? And if not... May God, by the Spirit, give us grace to grow in these areas. So let's go through these together. Commitment number one, they were a learning church. They were a learning church. What happens when a bunch of people who are miraculously awakened to new life by the gospel of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, what happens to them? Luke tells us they gain a new identity. They're no longer in Moses. These Jewish men and women are no longer in Moses. They are in Christ, and the Spirit of the living God lives within them. And that miracle does what? It stimulates a hunger to learn more, more about what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. Here in verse 42, we see that these new Christians devoted themselves continually to the apostles' teaching. This teaching was about Jesus Christ. It was authenticated by many signs and wonders, verse 43, and it became the foundation for the written New Testament, which you and I now have and study. In other words, their works authenticated or gave proof to the truthfulness of their word. In the new church, in the early church, wherever the gospel was preached, it pleased Jesus to signify the importance of the message by giving miraculous signs and wonders through the church's leaders. And we're going to see a lot more of that as we study the book of Acts. So I won't dwell on that too much right here. But these new Christians, listen, they couldn't get enough of the teaching of these apostles. There was no scheduled Bible studies. No one had to tell them to show up tomorrow, you know. It's like a little baby. You don't have to tell a baby to cry when it needs something. It just does it. Why? Because there's life there. This is a sign of life in the church. When the church is devoted to the Bible's teaching, 
In fact, Luke tells us in verse 46 that they gathered together day by day in the temple. In the temple on the east side, Solomon's portico or porch was there. It was a court that was large enough to support large crowds of people. And it was there that the apostles would expound the teaching of the scriptures. Friends, I don't want you to miss this. A person who is filled with the Spirit does not lay aside listening to the teachers that God calls to them. A spirit-filled, redeemed man, woman, boy, or girl doesn't begin the Christian life with a PhD in theology simply because they have the Holy Spirit so they can dispense with any teachers. No, they get their lunchbox and they go to kindergarten and they begin learning. And when the Bible is taught, friends, not, not perfectly, but faithfully, just as the, the rain and the snow fall from heaven and cause seed to sprout, so too does God's very word go from his mouth to do in his people all that he aims to do through those teachers. In fact, Paul will later write to the Ephesians, the church is continually cleansed when? As the word of God washes over them. Listen to Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Friends, do you see when a church, when a Christian is devoted to understanding the Bible, the scriptures, and in particular the depths of how Jesus loved her and gave himself for her, what happens? She grows. She flourishes. She becomes healthy. Isn't it interesting that Luke says in verse 43 that awe came upon every soul immediately following these ordinary signs of life and not after the many signs and wonders that were done by the apostles. It wasn't this awe that came on by the miracles. It was this awe that came on by their life together, devoted to the, the study of the scriptures as their minds were open. They were filled with awe over the greatness of God and the love of God in Jesus and the gospel. The early church was devoted to these ordinary yet extraordinary means of grace. And the more they gave themselves to them, reverence, awe, wonder filled their heart. Grace City Church, is this true of us? Are we devoted to the word? Do we allow the word to wash over us? regularly. During the conference, I mentioned how helpful the breakout session that Aaron and I attended on, the, on, on living our biblical convictions in the age of gender wars, as taught by our, our friend Josh. And it was essentially a call to stay committed to the Bible's teaching on, on, on gender and marriage, where, by the way, in our culture, Satan's most powerful forces are concentrated right now. Satan is trying to destroy the very fabric of human existence by whitewashing the very basic things that God has designed this world with. But one thing Josh said in his talk was very, very helpful for me. Here's what he said. He said, 
He said, our theology informs our practice, but our practice shapes our theology. He said it again. Our theology informs our practice, but our practice shapes our theology. And the point that he was making there in the context of what he was saying was, is that without our awareness so often, you and I are constantly being swept over by unseen doctrinal winds that are being pushed on our culture. This happens every time we pick up our phone. It happens every time we watch a movie or a show that's been put out in, let's say, the last five to ten years. It happens with every conversation we have with people who are also influenced by these things. But friends, listen, if we aren't conscious that this is happening, and so often we are not conscious, we will inevitably start slipping and sliding away from a confidence in the Scripture. It'll begin to weaken like a crack in the foundation of a house that we don't pay attention to and we let go until that house eventually topples down. That's where it begins. Is with a little compromise, a little open door, a little invitation to hear a different train of thought that's not quite scriptural but sounds kind of good. The crack widens. And what happens then is you begin to read scripture through our cultural influences. And we start forcing the Bible to say what it does not say. And friends, when we, when we do that, when we start ignoring the parts we don't really like too much, the result is that we become weak at best and at worst fall away. Now, friends, I, I rejoiced in knowing that we are a learning church. I, I, I see this as I observe the Sundays. I see this as I observe our missional communities. But I want to ask us, there's a, there's, a, there's a question embedded in here. Friends, are we casual about our spiritual health? Are we casual about our spiritual well-being? Are we willing to let in influences into our lives that do not find their foundation in what thus saith the Lord? Are we willing to do that? Are we doing that? Are we casual? Or are we devoted to the study of God's word? Grace City, are you availing yourself to the limited means that God's given to us as a church? The Bible study here, the men's thing Wednesday, missional communities throughout the week. We don't have a lot going on, but this is what God has given to us. Are you getting together with your brothers and sisters to talk theology, talk Bible? Friends, I love fellowship just like the next guy. But if all we ever talk about is changing diapers and watching football, and we never talk about God's word, we may go away full because of the fellowship, but we're going to go away empty spiritually because God's word is not in our, our midst. We have to fight for this. We must be devoted to this. We must have resolve toward this, friends. I know some of us are limited. Don't, don't, don't mishear me. If you're a parent and you just got 
you really are covered up to the, the gills and you know with, with what. Some of you have jobs, some of you have health issues, I, I, I get it, but we can prioritize a few things. Do you prioritize the Sunday gathering? Do you prioritize missional communities? Friends, if you, if you come to my house, you will hear the voices of my family. Those voices will be heard. And in the church where Christ lives, his voice, his word is heard. We can't, we can't be a people inhabited by Jesus himself and yet pay so little attention to his voice and expect to be healthy Christians. So they were a learning church. Are we devoted to learning? Commitment number two, they were a loving church. A loving church. Again, our theology shapes our practice, but our learning shapes, and our learning shapes our loving. Not not only did they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, but to the, the fellowship as well. Now, in our modern day, that we've really dumbed down that word fellowship. When you think about like good old-fashioned church fellowship, what do you think about? Come on, talk back. Potlucks, Potlucks right? <laughs> yep. Singing. What else? Christmas programs. All right, yeah, that's good. You know what I thought of? I thought of um, coffee and pastry. Coffee and pastry. Fellowship, right? That's fellowship. We get together and we have some food and we hang out and then and a potluck maybe. And then we all go home and that's fellowship, right? <laughs> that is fellowship. Don't get me wrong. That is fellowship. But the Greek word that Luke uses here, you probably have heard it before. The word is koinonia. You've heard of that word, right? That word means something like a sharing in common. Christian fellowship, says Luke, refers to the active sharing in the lives of the members of a local church whereby we are able to practice the one another's of the New Testament. That, that's koinonia, where we welcome one another, where we show hospitality to one another, where we're able to forgive one another, where we're able to bear with one another, we're able to pray for one another, where we're able to care for one another. That's fellowship. Friends, listen, you don't need an unusual outpouring of the Holy Spirit to do these things. You just need to, by grace, in the Spirit's power, be devoted to, be resolved to, be in fellowship, share in common with one another, with the saints. Luke further unpacks what koinonia means for us in verses 44 to 46. He says, And all believe, who believe were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. What does a loving church look like? They are together. And how could they not be? The local church is the outpost of heaven on earth. We're a people whose lives have been forever transformed. Why? Because Jesus emptied himself of the glories of heaven and stooped down to enter human skin so that he could know what it's like to be broken and screwed up like you and me are so that he could save us from our sin. Jesus laid down everything 
so that we could have everything in him. But loved ones, don't misunderstand. He, he, he did not do this for isolated individuals. All the Lone Ranger Christianity that we have given ourselves to. No, no. He did it for his bride, the church. The church is a community of humbled saints who have all things in common, who, who, who share in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are seriously doing better than we deserve. And friends, if Christ loved us that much, how much ought we to love one another? Listen, you have something to share, but it's not because you're great or I'm great. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you have something to share because God lives inside of you. You have something to give because you have been rescued from your sin. You are able to share in common whether you are the most extroverted person in this room or the most introverted person in this room. And, and, and think about the situation in Jerusalem at this time. I told you a few weeks ago that these new believing Jews found themselves in a very precarious economic situation. Their faith in Jesus isolated them from unbelieving Israel and all their friends and neighbors. And so what did the church do? They jumped up, they saw needs, and they cared, and they shared. When there was need, they sought to meet that need. If they didn't have a means of meeting that need, they sold their iPod or they sold their iPad or they sold their iPhone and they bought the thing that that person needed because that person didn't have anything. Friends, for the sake of the church, Jesus didn't hold on to his glory. So the church doesn't need to hold on tightly to anything we have for the sake of the others that God puts in front of us. They were together they broke bread in their homes. They do what Christians love to do together. That's eat. They gathered around the table to talk about the goodness of God. They walked arm in arm down to the temple to hear the apostles' teaching. And you know what the result was? Verse 46 tells us, joy. They ate their food with glad and generous hearts. Because of the self-giving of Jesus, they were able to, as Ray Orland says, they were able to unself themselves. And oh my, how it thrills your pastor's heart to see this happening at Grace City Church. Hardly a week goes by when I don't hear about meals taking place or coffee times happening or play dates with little ones. So often Michelle and I have been blessed by a meal or a text or a card, and I know this is happening with you. Guys, I just don't want you to miss this point. Don't, don't, don't discount how attractive our fellowship is to an unbelieving world. Don't discount how loud our love really is. When the gospel shapes a community and Jesus is central to its life, people are free and others want to get in on this. That's what Luke means in verse 47 when it says they had favor with all the people. People could see there were disciples of Jesus by the love that they had for each other. There's been times when I've been out with some of you, Panera, or getting coffee, and we're just talking. We're not even like loud unless Aaron's there and then it's, it's louder. But um, we're not like praying or anything like that. But people have come up to us and have said, hey, what church do you, you go to? What church do you belong to? 
And then my Bible open. We're just talking about the Lord, just talking about what God's doing. And people ask us, what, what are we a part of? Because they want to be a part of that. They're missing something, and they want to be a part of that. Our neighbors need our fellowship friends. Our neighbors need our interpersonal relationships to happen among us. Our neighbors need to see our love. If you're getting together with someone in the church here, go next door, knock on your neighbor's door and ask them to join with you. Hey, we're having some food out back. You want to come and join us? If you're having a play date with little babies, maybe ask the neighbor down the street that also has a baby. Give them an opportunity to see Jesus, friends. Because listen, gospel generosity is the engine of gospel opportunity. So make most of every opportunity. That's what a loving church looks like. So they were a learning church. They were a loving church. And finally, commitment number three, they were a liturgical church. Now, that sounds very high and lofty, especially if you come from one of the more high church mainline backgrounds. When we think of liturgical, at least I do, I think of a very like high and sober style of worship. But when we say liturgy, that, that is, comes from the Greek. It's just an old Greek word, and it simply means public service. It's, it's a word that came to refer to the corporate gathering of the church for worship. So liturgy is a local church's attempt to worship together. That's all it is. That's what we see in the early church. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, in the original, both of those words have the article in front of it, so this, Luke is probably suggesting a more formal participation in these things. Scholars are divided on what the breaking of bread means. Uh, of course, Jesus was known by the Emmaus Road disciples as they went down the road in the breaking of bread. So this could be a figure of speech or a metaphor for the Lord's Supper. Uh, it seems likely from what we can see that the Lord's Supper was a regular part of the meal when they would gather together. They would begin by having the Lord's Supper. And of course, there were the prayers. Again, there's a more formal word there. This probably refers to a certain time of day when, when prayers would happen. Next week, we're going to see chapter 3, verse 1. Peter and John go up to the temple during the hour of prayer. But friends, without overemphasizing anything, let's just focus on the point here. The church, the early church, prioritized liturgy. They were devoted to it. Every day they were found in the temple. They received the Lord's Supper together in their homes. They were identified by unbelieving Israel by their commitment to praise God together. Now, the question must be, why, why is liturgy in the local church so important? How, how is that a mark of ordinary faithfulness? Well, what is worship? These are, these are fundamental questions, brothers and sisters. What is worship? What is liturgy? A church's worship is its response to all that God has done for it in Jesus. That, that, that's our liturgy. Now listen, on, on the one hand, I can't stress this too much. God is worthy of our worship simply by virtue of the fact that he is God. Okay, I want you, I want you to get this down. 
A sunset is marveled at because of its beauty, not because of anything that it does for us, short of simply being beautiful. So with God. He he is worthy because he is majestic apart from us. Okay? The, the, The origins of everything pure and beautiful and lovely and powerful trace back to God himself. The power of a waterfall, the beauty of a symphony, the loveliness of a rose. And if God never did a single thing for us, he would be worthy of our endless praise for all eternity on the basis alone that he is God. Apart from us. He does not need us. Someone in this room be freed up by that statement. He does not need you to be God. He has no need, and for that reason, he is worthy to be worshipped. But friends, take this, God I'm just speaking of, and imagine the reality that this God became one of us. As Wesley's hymn goes, we've sung this recently, he left the Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Every Sunday when we get in this room, our liturgy is a response to the self-giving of God in Jesus Christ. When Jordan or Aaron or Brian organize the Sunday gathering, you might not notice it, but there is a flow to it, all right? The call to worship begins by lifting up our eyes off of ourselves because you know we've been navel-gazing all week. So we lift our eyes up and look to our great God. Then we sing a few songs on his, about his glory and how amazing he is and how wonderful he is. Then we have a scripture reading where we get to hear God's very words being spoken to us to confirm the truths of what we just saying. Then we sing another song, usually about our need, about our sin. And we finish strong with a song that shows how Jesus dealt with our sin. Then we pray together, and we are devoted to praying together. And then we welcome you as Christ has welcomed us. And then we hear God speak from his word. And then we send us out with his blessing. There's a flow to our liturgy. Now, why does that matter? Does it matter? Can we be arbitrary in our worship? No, and yes, it matters, because a church's liturgy shapes what that church becomes. Be very careful about the church you join yourself with. If you stay there long enough, you will look like that church. Our liturgy is a response to the attributes of God and the love of God and the gospel. But the more we behold the glory of God, the more we're transformed into the the people that God created us to be. Paul said this, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Friends, this transformation happens when we devote ourselves to bringing ourselves under the liturgy 
of our local church together. Now, conversely, when we're casual about our corporate worship, when it fails to be a priority in our life, you know what's going to happen? The opposite of what you see here. Awe, reverence, wonder will fade. Weakness will come. Joy will wither. Our theological sharpness will grow dull. We will be a people shaped by the philosophies and the people that we spend the most of our time with. Why? Because by divine design, we become what we behold. We become what we behold. We become like the people that we spend time with. And when we spend time together, if it's people like this, marveling at Jesus together, we become like Jesus together. Grace City, are we beholding that we may become? Are we inhaling together? Are we hearing the glories of the apostles' teaching about Jesus and tasting of the glories of Jesus in the Lord's Supper? Then exhaling, responding to God in prayer and in song and in giving thanks to him for all that he is and has done. Well, we notice, verse 47, we notice the obvious fruit then of this kind of devotion. When there's learning and loving and liturgy, there's multiplication. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Just an ordinary but faithful church devoted to working out the implications of the work of Jesus in their lives with a notable glory in their, on their faces. And the people in Jerusalem wanted it. They wanted to get in on it, though it would cost them everything. They wanted to get in on it because in doing so, they would gain Christ. Loved ones, do we want the same that they, that they had, that they wanted? Do we have the same longing? Are we devoted to this trinity, this trinity of commitments? Now, as a church, I think we are. I have a few minutes left. I just want to spend a few minutes pastoring us as we close. I think we are as a church. But one question I think is important to, to pose to us here, and I want to pose this to myself. Will we be devoted to faithful, ordinary, learning, loving, and liturgy when our experience doesn't match verse 47? Unusual time of revival, revival in the early church. God's spirit is sweeping Jerusalem. But friends, you know, so much of the Christian life is not characterized by visible, notable miracles and widespread conversion. The Christian life really is doing small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time with Jesus until we die. And so often we don't see the fruit that we wish we could see. So often there's not measured results. But friends, do you want to know what kind of church is pleasing to Jesus? 
not necessarily the one that's marked by lots of momentum, not necessarily one that has a robust missions department. And I know some of you have a heart for missions. Not necessarily one that has an exciting youth ministry. Not necessarily one that has a lot of classes and different discipleship opportunities. No, the kind of church, listen, don't, please don't, if you don't hear anything today, please hear this. The kind of church that is pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ is an ordinary, plodding, faithful people when there is no results, visible results. That's what pleases him. As I said, I I heard a lot of great sermons at the conference, but the last one that, uh, a man by the name of Jared Mellinger, he's a, a pastor of a church in Pennsylvania, he preached this sermon and it was the most impactful for me personally. And I want to share with you why and then I'll close. He preached on Revelation 3. And he, he talked about the church in Philadelphia. There were seven churches that Jesus spoke to in Revelation 2 and 3. Philadelphia was one of them. It was one of the churches in Asia Minor. If you read that and you study those seven churches, you can see that this is the only church of the seven that Jesus commends and doesn't give some form of rebuke. Only one. And we see why in verse 8. Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus says, I know your works, that you have but little power. In other words, there's nothing special about you from a human perspective. And yet... You have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Then in verse 7, he exhorts them, hold fast to what you have. A church with little power, unimpressive Christians who don't know Greek and Hebrew, who are living paycheck to paycheck, who wake up every day and pray and read the Bible, even though so often it doesn't move them. Unimpressive Christians who fight against sin that they hate is in their lives, that they wish God would take away, but every time they fall down, they get up again. Ordinary parents who day after day try to feed their babies some morsel of God's truth, even though those same kids block their ears to it. Teenagers who wake up to read their Bible, trying to understand it, even though when they go to school, the allure of worldly friends is strong. Jesus is commending that. Young adults who go off to work, who try to live for Jesus, and who would probably advance up in their company if they made compromises, but are instead content to have less so they can honor Jesus' name to their co-workers, hold fast to this. Yes, Jesus says, I know your works. I See them. You have little power, yet you are keeping my word and you are not denying my name and I'm coming for you with a crown. Hold fast 
to what you have. Jared Mellinger quoted from J.C. Ryle. I want to read this lengthy quote to you because I think about Grace City Church when I hear it. I want you to see this and just receive this for yourself and then I'll get ready to close. Think also what encouragement there is here for every honest and true-hearted believer. To you also, Jesus says, I know your works. You see no beauty in any action that you do. All seems imperfect, blemished, and defiled. You are often sick at heart of your own shortcomings. You often feel that your whole life is one great arrear, and that every day is either a blank or a blot. But know now that Jesus can see some beauty in everything you do from a conscientious desire to please him. His eye, listen, his eye can discern excellence in the least thing which is a fruit of his own spirit. He can pick out the grains of gold amid the dross of your performances and sift the wheat from amid the chaff in all your doings. Your tears are all put in his bottle. Your endeavors to do good to others however feeble, are written in his book of remembrance. The least cup of cold water given in his name shall not lose its reward. Listen, he does not forget your work and labor of love, however little the world may regard it. I want you to hear, Brian, I want you to hear that. Mike, I want you to hear that. Aaron, I want you to, Andrea, I want you to hear that. Sean, Tina, I want you to hear that for you. Rick, take that for you, brother. Take that for, Matt Hager, here, take that for you, brother. Everyone else, take that for you. Take this in your heart. He does not overlook one thing that you do in his name. Gene, he's coming for a crown, with a crown for you. And he is pleased. We may not be that impressive. We may not, we may not be branching out in ministry but that, like we'd like to. But Grace City Church, we are marked by ordinary faithfulness, which in heaven's eyes is extraordinary. If we're weak in some areas, and we are, <laughs> oh my, there are, that list is a bit longer than the faithful list, isn't it? If we are weak, let's seek to, by grace, by prayer, not to be stronger, but to be faithful. If we're battling a private sin, let's bring it out in the open. Friends, a forgiven sin is a sin that can be overcome. And God commands us to fight sin in community with the power of his promises as our strength. If we're withholding our goods or possessions out of fear that we won't have enough, let's remember that it is through Jesus' poverty that we gained the storehouses of heaven. And there's not one thing, friend, that we will lose in this world that heaven will not restore 100-fold if it is done and lost in Jesus' name. If we've been minimizing the Sunday gathering in exchange for more exciting things like travel or entertainment or family, Let's remember that we become what we behold. 
and here on Sunday in our, in our MCs, it may not be entertaining, but Jesus walks among the lampstands of our gathering, and the church with, the, with Christ in its center has the spirit of Jesus and his life coursing through it. Friends, Jesus says, I know your works. So church, hold fast to what you have, and the Lord will add to our number and our ministry in his own time and in his own way. Amen.